Church family, it is a joy uh, to be with you all this morning. Uh, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Isaiah chapter 3. Isaiah chapter 3. Uh, and if you have a pew Bible, go ahead and turn to page 568. Page 568. Eric already read it for us earlier today, so I won't be reading it in its entirety during the sermon today. Uh, but I would highly recommend that you have it open and are looking at it because we are going to be referencing it a lot as we navigate the text uh, this morning. But before we begin to do that, let's go to God in prayer to ask for his help to understand his word. Uh, let's pray now. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word this morning, help us to do so humbly uh, as those who sit under it and not over it. Uh, where we lack understanding, bring illumination by the Spirit. By your grace, equip your bride for the work of the ministry. Uh, grow our hope of heaven in this time, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So I wonder if you've ever heard the saying, never meet your heroes. Never meet your heroes. The idea behind that saying is that we should never meet those whom we idolize, those whom we highly esteem, those whom we hold up in high regard, because when we do, we'll only be left disappointed. Uh, the amazing athlete, the movie star, the politician, the influencer, uh, the person we've built up and put on the pedestal of our minds and hearts, if you get too close to them, you'll only find out that they have flaws too. They may be amazing on the field or on the court, but turns out they're horrible spouses. Uh, they may look beautiful on the big screen, but turns out a lot of that is makeup and special effects. Uh, they may make promises on the campaign trail, only to find out that they don't actually believe in the causes that they were pushing in their campaigning. Their life looks perfect on the gram, but turns out their life is really a mess, and they don't actually own half of the things that they post on social media. Never meet your heroes, uh, because if you do, if you get close enough, they'll only disappoint you. Our passage for this morning is a warning against idolizing people. A warning against idolizing people. It's a continuation of God's judgment on wicked Israel. So in chapter 2 of, our, of uh, the book of Isaiah, the Lord judges people for their idolatry of objects, uh, of creation, that they have chosen to worship over the Creator. And of course, this idolatry, it stems from somewhere, it comes from somewhere, a wicked heart, hearts that are bent on putting everything and everyone on the throne other than God. After the Lord's assault on their idolatry of the work of their hands, he turns his attention to the idolatry of people. Uh, look with me at verse 22 of chapter 2. Stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath, for of what account is he. Uh, stop regarding, stop idolizing, stop esteeming, trusting in mere humans. Why? Well, because the best of men are men at best. Humans are utterly dependent. We are finite creatures who genuinely are one breath away from death. We're not worthy of praise. And not only are we finite, but to make matters worse, we are also fallen. Uh, there's no aspect of human life that has not been touched by our fallenness. 
uh, from the highest to the lowest, sin dwells within us all. Now, this is the catalyst for our passage for this morning. Through the pronouncement of judgment, God uncovers for us the folly of idolizing people. Now, a quick reminder before we dive into the text this morning on how to read the book of Isaiah. This is prophetic poetry. Right? This text is full of symbolism, full of imagery and repetition, all meant to, get to, meant to point us to a deeper meaning. And not only that, but this symbolism is actually woven in with real historical events. The literal and the figurative are taking place before us. So as we walk through this text, we'll have to consider some of what took place historically to come away with the right meaning. So for those who are taking notes this morning, here's the main idea of our passage. God's judgment will destroy the wicked and purify the righteous. God's judgment will destroy the wicked and purify the righteous. We'll see this aspect of God's judgment as we consider his actions, uh, his posture toward three different kinds of people. So I'll just go ahead and give you my outline. Action one, wrath for the rulers. We see this in verse 1 to 15 of chapter 3. Wrath for the rulers. Action two, punishment for the prideful. Punishment for the prideful. This is uh, verse 16 of chapter 3 all the way to 4 verse 1. And then action three, hope for the hopeless. Hope for the hopeless. That's verses 2 to 6 of chapter 4. So beginning with action one, wrath for the rulers. A very basic but effective question that we can ask when we study the scriptures is, what is God doing? What is God doing? God's actions always point to his heart. And in the first three verses, we see clearly what God is doing and who he is doing it to. You see there, for behold, the Lord God of hosts is taking away judgment by subtraction. But what exactly is he taking away? Support and supply. This is what the leaders of Jerusalem were supposed to be doing, supporting and supplying the people of God, protecting and providing both physically and spiritually. But sadly, these wicked leaders had abandoned their responsibilities long ago. And so the Lord takes them away. Uh, verse 2 and 3 uh, serve as, as examples of these types of leaders that may, they may have had in their society. But again, they're taken away. This is judgment by subtraction, a removal of leadership. Isaiah, he begins at a, at a high level and then slowly begins to zoom the camera in for a closer look at the nature of God's judgment. In verses 4 and 5, we see the result of this removal of leadership. It's, it's utter chaos. Uh, images of boys and infants as princes and rulers is meant to depict instability. It's chaos. It's instability. It's the instability that comes as a result of moving, removing leaders. Uh, removal of leadership, it always creates a vacuum. Someone will lead, but the results in this case will be akin to babies being in charge. Uh, all of society is, is flipped on its head. And then verses 6 to 8 illustrate the impact of this wicked leadership removal. Uh, things have gotten so bad uh, that people are willing to make anyone a leader. Uh, you have a cloak. In other words, uh, you, you dress the part. We'll, we'll have you be the leader of this trash heap. This is desperation at its highest. Uh, no background check. No experience, no resume needed. You look the part, you be our leader. 
caution and discernment are, are out the window. They want anything and anyone to come and bring relief and order out of the chaos of God's judgment. You know, in, in, in so many ways, our society today is similar. Our world wants relief from chaos, but it looks to everyone and everywhere except to God. And saints, the church, unfortunately, is not immune to do the same. Uh, we would do well as the people of God, who have the spirit of God, to think wisely about who our leaders are. And I'm not just talking about politicians. I'm talking about influence. Right? Who or what influences you most? Uh, Christians, what captivates your eyes most? Uh, what voices do you listen to regularly? Is what you're looking at or listening to most often pointing you to God or away from God? Is the news or, or social media or a podcast more of an authority or a leader in your life than the Bible or the pastors of this church? I'd like to give you one proof text as to why you should go to the Word and to your pastors before you go to podcast or Twitter. Hebrews 13, 17. Uh, the author of Hebrews writes, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Uh, that social media influencer, uh, that presidential candidate, will not give an account for your soul. But according to Hebrews 13, your pastors will. We will stand before God to give an account for all who are in the membership of this church. So, rather than rushing to the internet to make decisions, and I have nothing against the internet, by all means, you can use it, it's a tool. Rather than going there first, church, I would encourage us all to go to the Word first, and also to the men whom God has charged with keeping watch over your soul. As Isaiah continues, we find that there will be no relief. The random guy in a cloak, he refuses, right? He has no solutions for their problems. Up to this point, the judgment of God is in, the judgment of God on Judah's wicked leaders is in its crosshairs. But are these people merely lemmings? Do they have no responsibility in all this chaos? Uh, well, what, what has caused Jerusalem and Judah to stumble and fall? According to verse 8, uh, their speech and their deeds are against the Lord. Right here, we get to the core of the problem. Israel has rebelled against their first love. Uh, they have forgotten the God who rescued them from Egypt. Uh, they had got, forgotten the God who brought them through the wilderness, who fed them with manna from heaven and a water from the rock. Uh, their words and their actions, the fruit of their lives, testify to their rebellion against Yahweh. Verse 9 the look on their faces bears witness against them. They don't hide their sin. Uh, they proclaim it. They, they boast in it. Uh, just like the city of Sodom, right? the city that had given itself over to all kinds of sexual immorality to the point that God annihilated the city entirely. Uh, they are no longer ashamed of their sin. They take pride in their sin. Isaiah says, woe to them. Uh, grief, uh, concern. Isaiah pities the rebellious state of Judah. They have, they have brought evil on themselves. In verse 10 and 11, we see the all-encompassing nature of the suffering that Israel 
is putting themselves through. Both the righteous and the wicked are going through it. Sadly, when authority is corrupt, often those who are striving to do good as well suffer in the midst of these tragedies. Verse 10, let's take a closer look at that. It's, it's almost like we see there a, a small and short reprieve from the barrage of judgment in the previous verses. The Lord acknowledges there are righteous people among the wicked, and he whispers this brief promise to them, it shall be well with them. They shall eat the fruit of their deeds. Uh, not might, not probably, but it shall be well. This is a, a guarantee, a promise that the righteous will inherit good. Historically speaking, things did not get better for Judah immediately. Uh, the invasion eventually came, exile ensued, and Jerusalem was destroyed. So as far as this generation that Isaiah is speaking directly to, uh, this promise, it couldn't have been an earthly promise, uh, but rather a spiritual one, uh, where it matters most. When it comes to eternity, it will, it will go well for the righteous. Verse 11 contrasts the promise to the righteous in verse 10 with the promise that it will go badly for the unrighteous. It begins with another woe, another cry of, of pity. Just as sure as the righteous will receive good, the wicked will receive bad. God is not a liar. He will do what he says. The Lord alone determines if and when physical blessing and physical destruction will be administered. But what we do know in, that, in verses 10 and 11 is that these things reach their final fulfillment eternally. Uh, earthly judgment, it, it may come, it may not come. The reality, and I think we all can testify to this, is that the reality is that it is possible for the wicked to see a ripe old age. Well, does that make a God a liar? Uh, by no means. Consider Deuteronomy 7, verses 9 and 10. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, uh, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations, and repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack with one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. In God's courtroom, there are no wrongful convictions. The guilty will always be punished, and the innocent will always go free. In verses 12 to 15, the Lord, for, for just a moment, reveals his heart. Uh, three times we see the phrase, my people. Uh, the deeper we get into this passage of God's righteous judgment, uh, we can't forget that these unruly, chaotic people, they're actually God's people. This is Israel, God's chosen people, the people that he set his affections upon, not because they were many in number, but because he loved them. And he was keeping his covenant that he swore to their fathers. It is this Israel that the Lord's heart breaks for. Ezekiel 33, 11, say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? In verse 12, the imagery, it keeps going. Infants are their oppressors. Women rule over them. Guides mislead them. Now, I realize to our modern sensibilities, our modern ears, we can trip up on the language here. 
uh, especially around the, the image of a woman ruling over a people group. But there are a few things that we have to remember as we read passages like this in Isaiah. So here's some Bible study 101. First, Isaiah is not writing to our modern society, right? Therefore, we have to ask ourselves, what would this have meant to the original audience? Second thing that we need to consider, this is poetry. Isaiah is using images and symbolism to point out a deeper meaning. Third, this is judgment. This passage is judgment. So regardless of our modern-day sensibilities, this image is meant to portray something bad, something out of order. And then lastly, uh, when you don't understand something in Scripture, uh, use what you do understand to inform that which you don't understand. So let's go ahead and do that now. Isaiah uses two other images, infants as oppressors and guides that mislead. Infants, youth, children, the most vulnerable among us, in this case, are now oppressors. Isaiah is again highlighting the chaos and confusion that has come from Israel's rebellion. Guides that mislead, they, they confuse the direction of Israel. Israel is lost. So Isaiah is using these images to get across the sad reality that things are not as they should be. Uh, women, those who are meant to be helpers according to Genesis 2.18, are now ruling and leading, which by implication means that the men are not. Uh, Israel is not living the way that God has called them to live, and this breaks the Lord's heart. But like a good father, the Lord must discipline those whom he loves. Look at God's posture, his actions in verses 13 and 15. The Lord, he contends. He stands. He enters into judgment. Uh, much like chapter 1 of the book of Isaiah, we find ourselves in a holy courtroom. And God, the judge of all the earth, has reached a righteous verdict. Israel is guilty. It is Israel who has devoured the vineyard. It is Israel who has been caught with stolen items that belong to the poor. It is it, the wicked uh, leaders of Israel that have crushed God's people and oppressed the poor and vulnerable among them. Church family, one of the most sobering realities about the God that we serve, that sadly we tend to ignore or just simply don't think enough about, is that God sees everything. And God will judge everything. Hebrews 4.13. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Church, there's a valuable lesson here. Rather than attempting to hide our sin as if that were even possible with an all-seeing God, allow the truth of God's omniscience to encourage us to live and walk in the light. God already sees. God already knows. To conceal sin is to put ourselves in the prison of our own making, while at the same time refusing to take the key that God offers to our freedom, the freedom that we so desperately need. OBC family, walk in the light. Confess sin regularly. Our God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Verse 15, Isaiah concludes this part of God's judgment on Israel the same way that he began. Uh, this is a declaration from the mouth of the Lord God of hosts. Hosts meaning armies, uh, more specifically angel armies. Lest we think that these are empty threats, 
the God, that God will somehow not make good on his promises or does not have the power to judge in this way, the Lord reminds all who read this prophecy of who exactly he is, the God of angel armies. These mighty angelic beings, they answer to his command. He is more than able to judge those who oppress his people. Although this passage is indeed poetry, uh, the wickedness on display by the leaders of Israel, it was very, very real. They really had abandoned the God of the Bible for the worship of idols. They really were oppressing and overlooking the vulnerable among them. Uh, but as is always the case, a person's, a person's actions are a direct reflection of the state of their heart. In other words, uh, the fruit is always a product of the root. And in verse 16 to chapter 4, verse 1, we get an idea of the root of some of Israel's wickedness. So that brings us to action number two, uh, punishment for the prideful. Punishment for the prideful. There may be no stronger message in Scripture than the fact that God hates pride. Uh, not the pride that we feel when we get a, you know, do a job well done, but the pride that comes from a self-righteousness, a conceitedness, a pride that attempts to rob God of the glory that is due his name. As verse 16 mentions, a haughtiness. Psalm 10, verse 4, uncovers what pride really does. The psalmist writes, In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. Pride is spiritually deadly because it blinds us to our greatest need, our need to be in right relationship with God. Pride is spiritually deadly because it blinds us to our greatest need, our need to be made right with God. Pride is like a powerful painkiller. It blocks the pain receptors that are trying to tell your brain that something is wrong in the body. Uh, there's a part of your body that needs attention. Although this might be, bring a temporary relief, if relied upon too often, painkillers will actually mask the real problem, allowing for more permanent damage to occur. Pride is a spiritual painkiller that dulls the spiritual senses that we need. It is, good to, to, it is a good thing to feel our need for God. It is a good thing when suffering opens our eyes to the spiritual realm. It is a good thing to feel the weight of eternity. Because as we feel our need, we turn to the only one who can meet our need, God Almighty. And so, our loving God will always oppose the proud because he cannot give his glory to another. Herein lies the heart of the problem that Isaiah is pointing to in these set of verses. The daughters of Zion, just another name for the children of Israel, they are haughty. They walk around with outstretched necks. They are fundamentally a prideful people who, rather than exalting the God who parted the Red Seas, exalt themselves. Uh, church, this is, this is cosmic treason. Uh, this, is, this is wicked rebellion. This is the creation shaking its fist at the Creator. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And because they do not fear Yahweh, because they refuse to worship the one true God, he must judge them. So if you are prideful, then God will judge you. Cause 
in effect. This is essentially what's taking place in this set of verses. Their pride, their, their self-exaltation has, has set off a chain reaction of judgment. Verse 17, the Lord will strike. The Lord will lay bare. Verse 18, the Lord will take away. God will not turn a blind eye to those who attempt to steal his glory. It's in his nature to destroy those who attempt to usurp his throne. Notice what he goes after, the external. This imagery of striking the head with a scab and exposing secret parts, or as one translation puts it, shaving their heads bare. It's meant to convey judgment through humiliation. God takes away the natural, the physical beauty of Israel. Not only does he go after the natural beauty, but in verse 18, we see a long list of these external adornments, uh, anklets, pendants, bracelets, nose rings, robes, garments, veils, etc. Israel was finding worth. They were finding value in their appearance. They were boasting in what they looked like, in their possessions, while ignoring the God who provided these possessions for them in the first place. But God will have none of this. And so he will take this away. He will take it all away. When? On that day. Now, history tells us there would eventually be a day when the Assyrian army invaded. They destroyed everything and literally took away all of their possessions. This would indeed be a day of judgment for Judah. Isaiah's poetic imagery of God's justice, it keeps going in verse 24, this time through the lens of replacement. Five times he repeats the words, instead. Uh, symbols and images of beauty will be replaced with symbols and images of suffering and sadness. Perfume for stench, uh, fine clothes for sackcloth. The images, they don't end there. In verse 25, the camera shifts to a war scene. Judgment now takes the form of a devastated army. Uh, the Lord guarantees they will lose future battles as a result of the, and as, as a result of this, there will be nationwide mourning. Again, allusion to the Assyrian invasion. The Lord would judge Judah by removing his hedge of protection. The final effect caused by Israel's haughtiness we see in verse one of chapter four. The ravages of war would be so devastating that there would literally be a noticeable decrease in the male population of Judah. Uh, most, if not all, men sent into war would die at the hand of the enemy, leaving behind masses of widows and orphans. The women left behind, they would reach such a level of, of desperation such that they would, no longer, uh, they would no longer depend on a husband for provision. Instead, they would settle for simply taking a man's last name as a means of protection in this fractured society. Cause and effect. The haughty and the proud will be opposed, which is why Scripture over and over again implores us to be humble, to remain humble. If there's anything that we can learn from Israel's pride is that we must pursue humility at all times. Well, how exactly do we pursue humility? Here's just a few practical ways to pursue humility in your everyday life. First, always seek godly counsel. Always seek godly counsel, whatever the circumstances are, big or small, seek counsel. Never assume that you have things figured out. Asking for help primes the pump of humility. Second, remember that you are fallible. 
Remember that you are fallible. You will make mistakes in this life. Uh, The sooner you become okay with that, the better. (laughs) Don't take yourself so serious. Here we go. Laugh. Laugh at yourself. Laugh at other things. Third, make prayer an instinct. Make prayer an instinct. Prayer, by its very nature, is a posture of dependence, a a posture of humility, which means if we're not praying, then we're depending on our own strength. Prayer extinguishes the flame of pride. Prayer extinguishes the flame of pride. Fourth, remember death. Remember death. There may be no more sobering of a thought than the fact that we will all one day die. The more that we remember death, the less prone we become to taking pride in the things of this world. And then lastly, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. There is no better example of humility than Jesus. His whole life was an act of humility. Philippians 2.8, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Up to this point in our passage, we've essentially seen nothing but doom and gloom. The Lord, out of his holy justice, is rightly punishing sin. Wicked rulers who are supposed to be protecting and providing for God's people are now objects of his wrath. Those who had been called to do justice and to walk humbly were now oppressing the weak and living haughtily. Is this it? Is this Israel's end? Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Uh, Not only is God a just judge according to Exodus 34, he's also a merciful father. And beginning in the garden, God has never left his people without hope. Uh, Genesis 3-7 recounts the moment that sin entered into the world. And just eight verses later comes hope. The promised hope of the one who would come and reverse the curse, redeeming and restoring fallen mankind. The promised hope that we celebrate this very Christmas season, the Messiah come to save his people from their sins. This is the pattern in Scripture. The God who abounds in steadfast love and faithfulness never leaves his people without hope. His plan has always been to make all things new, which is what we see happening in these last few verses. Chapter 4, verses 2 to 6. Action number 3, hope for the hopeless. Hope for the hopeless. Let me read this once more for us, starting in verse 2. In that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. And he who is left left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy, everyone who had been recorded for life in Jerusalem, when the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of judgment and by a spirit of burning. A branch of the Lord, he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem. In other words, 
a remnant. God, in his mercy, will leave a remnant. Historically speaking, this did take place. It would be 70 years of exile before the children of Israel would return and rebuild the temple. There would really be survivors of God's judgment. And these survivors would be beautiful. They would be glorious and holy, but not because of anything that they have done, but instead because of what God has done. Verse 4, he has washed away the filth and cleansed the bloodstains of the children of Israel. Purification, cleansing through judgment. And here we find that judgment has two purposes. For the wicked, it leads to their destruction. But for the righteous, those whom God has set his affections upon, it leads to purification. Uh, the end of verse 4, by a spirit of judgment and by a spirit of burning. The Lord is committed to making his people holy, uh, setting them apart from all other nations. It's like gold being heated up to melt away impurities, leaving behind pure gold. God, likewise, uh, sends judgment, uses judgment to melt away the impurities of Judah, to purify the people and to make them clean. Hebrews 12, uh, verse 6, For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. And friends, he continues to do this very thing on this side of the cross through the presence and power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. It's the Spirit that comforts through trials and grows us in convictions. It's the Spirit that grows our appetite for that which is holy and our distaste for that which is sin. As we give ourselves to the means of grace that God has provided for us to grow, his word, his church, prayer, the Spirit of God is progressively making us more like the Son of God, Jesus Christ. The branch of the Lord becomes beautiful because God cleanses Jerusalem. Uh, but not only does he cleanse, he also creates. Uh, let's look with me at verse 5 and 6. Then the Lord will create over the whole site of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day and smoke and the shining of a flaming fire by night. For, for over all the glory there will be a canopy. There will be a booth for shade by day from the heat and for a refuge and a shelter from the storm and rain. Foundational to the Christian faith is the biblical truth that God is both creator and sustainer of all things. Creator and sustainer of all things. Romans 11, verse 36, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. And the images we see in verses 5 and 6 speak to the ends for which God creates. Look at the objects, a cloud a flaming fire, a canopy, a booth. Uh, the images of cloud and, and fire, these are symbols of the Lord's guidance, the guidance of his people, images meant to remind Israel of their escape from Egypt as he guided them through the wilderness and to the Red Sea. God guides his people. And then the image of a canopy or, or a booth or shelter, both forms of refuge, forms of, of coverage meant to keep those under it out of the rain or out of the scorching heat. God shelters his people. Uh, so whether it be guidance or whether it be shelter, 
God is always with his people. This is a glorious hope for hopeless Israel, and this is a glorious hope for us as well. God dwells with his people. Sound familiar? Emmanuel, God with us. 700 years after Isaiah's day, God would dwell with his people in a way that he had never done before. God the Father would send God the Son into the world. Jesus Christ left the glories of heaven, put on flesh, was born of a woman into a sinful and fallen world. Yet at no point did he ever sin. Uh, He lived a life in full obedience to God the Father. And his perfect life, it culminated in him being wrongfully accused and hung on a Roman cross to die, scorned by the ones he came to save. After he died, his body was placed in a tomb. Hopeless Israel, rejecting their only hope. But three days later, much like his birth, something happened that had never happened before. Jesus Christ rose from the dead to never die again. Death defeated, penalty paid, hope secured. Friends, this is the good news of the gospel. So if you're here this morning and you've not trusted in Christ for salvation, I wonder where or in what are you looking to for hope for eternity? Is it secure? How will it stand under the judgment of God that we've talked about this morning? Our passage for this morning and the gospel make clear that there is no secure hope outside of trusting in the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you've not secured this hope in Jesus, I would implore you to do so today. Turn from your sins, repent of your sins, and put your trust in Christ for salvation for real, lasting hope in this sinful and fallen world. If you would like to know more about that, please do talk to the person who invited you. Come speak to a pastor on the way out. We would want nothing more than for you to put your trust in Christ for salvation. And although these last few verses in Isaiah do point to historical moments, their greatest fulfillment comes through the work of Christ on the cross. Go back to verse 2. Look at the first three words, in that day. The Jerusalem of Isaiah's day looked forward to the coming Messiah, the day in which the branch of the Lord would be beautiful and glorious. Their hope was that the Lord would wash away their filth and cleanse their bloodstains. Well, OBC family, in so many ways, our hope is the same. We, too, look forward to the day when we will see the Messiah, the Lord of hosts in all of his glory. But this time will be his second coming, his final appearing, where he will gather his people once and for all. Listen to John's words and his description of this day in Revelation 7. Then one of the elders addressed me saying, who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? I said to him, sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. But the sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. 
For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to the springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Church, this is the day that we look forward to, the day in which sin will cease to exist, the day that we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Church, as we wait for that day, uh, may we do so patiently, uh, trusting in his promises, knowing and being known by one another, uh, persevering in prayer, singing his praises now, only to get ready to sing his praises for eternity. Uh, May we be those who never lose heart because God's judgment will indeed destroy the wicked, but it will also purify the righteous. Let's pray. Lord of hosts, who are we that you are mindful of us. Uh, As those who are prone to pride and those who are prone to boast, we pray that by your grace you would grow us in humility this week. Uh, Remind us that you are a God who is mighty to save and have, have done so through your son, Jesus Christ. As we celebrate the incarnation of Christ, by your spirit, make us more like Christ, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.